Let me invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. And as you're turning there, uh, Joseph asked me to also make mention that Whitney Mack is with us this morning. Where is Whitney? Is she? Raise your hand. Whitney's from Africa. There, there we are. We want to recognize you and, and uh, pray for you and appreciate uh, all our missionaries serving all, all around the world. So it's good to have you with us this morning. I want to just make another comment, too, as Joseph said. I know he'll tell us more about his vacation in an upcoming sermon. But I just want to point out that since I moved down here two years ago from Ohio, everyone has pretty much called me Yankee, Northerner, all kinds of things. But our own good old boy senior pastor is more of a Yankee and more of a Northerner than I am. The Upper Peninsula is hours north of where I'm from. So just keep that in mind next time. Call me, yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure, you betcha. That's right. Very good. Again, as if you turn to Exodus 13, our verses we're going to consider 17 through 22. But the sight is absolutely breathtaking. The hundreds of crowds, thousands of people, maybe even millions, some estimate, are gathered together and are celebrating. They're going out from bondage and deliverance. I doubt any ticker tape parade in New York City or any celebration on Super Bowl Sunday would come close to matching the sights and the sounds and the smells of this deliverance from captivity in Egypt. You might need to cover your ears from all the cheers of celebration, but you also might need to cover your ears because there's wailing, not just celebration in Egypt, but there's mourning. This deliverance has not come without a cost. Those who are delivered from bondage in Egypt have been sheltered underneath the blood of the Lamb. And those who were not sheltered under the blood of the Lamb, the firstborn over all of Egypt, have been destroyed. The heirs of fortune and promise are lost. You might need to cover your nose as well because... Livestock and cattle are pilgrims on this journey too. They're taking all their possessions and their livelihood. And they're taking everything they've had and they've known. While they've been 400 years in Egypt, they're taking with them. Because a call has gone out from the Lord God Almighty. And Israel has an appointment in the desert to worship that God on the mountain. But that's not the only smell of livestock. There's also the pungent smell of death. Again, there's mourning and wailing. There's time of great celebration and exaltation. There's times of weeping. Again, I doubt any day that we've seen in our modern era could even come close to the sights and to the smells of the deliverance in the Exodus journey. So that's our context. That's where we're going to be meeting our passage this morning. And as we look to God's word, let's ask his help in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, which sharpens us, which corrects us, which rebukes us, which gives us life. We pray now that as we look to your word, you might meet with us in a special way, just as you met with your people in Israel. And just as you led your people Israel, we thank you for how you lead us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this Exodus 13, verses 17 to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go... God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. 
And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, again, verse 17 tells us when Pharaoh let the people go. If there's not a bigger of an understatement in all the Bible, I don't know where to find it. Pharaoh let the people go. For those of us who are familiar with the account in Egypt where God sent the ten plagues and his glory and his majesty and his power were on display in this time in Egypt in unparalleled fashion in human history. We know that Pharaoh was not an enthusiastic participant, though he would become one by the end of the ten plagues. No, Pharaoh fought tooth and nail the word of God, God's messenger and deliverer Moses. He did not want to let the people go because the people in Egypt, if you remember, were not just citizens in Pharaoh's land. They were slaves. They were captives. They were kept against their will and their might. And for 400 years, they were forced to build Pharaoh's buildings and to labor day and night through toil and sweat and tears. And finally, God, we learn in the Bible that God says he has heard their cries for deliverance and he's remembered his covenant with them. And he has sent a deliverer, Moses. But again, the text might seem, if we just took this passage, we might think Pharaoh was willingly letting the people go. But the issue was ownership. Who had the right to lay claim on the lives and the service of these people? Was it the commander of the fiercest army in all the world, the genocidal king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his men? Or was it the king of heaven and earth? And the Exodus account leaves no doubt from the pit of slavery all the way through the journeys to the promised land that it is the sovereign king of heaven and earth who is at work, who is guiding, who is directing all things in motions according to his will and for his good purposes and for the people's good, as we're going to look at here in our text. He is at work. But before we think of this prologue, so to speak, to the Exodus journey through the wilderness, we need to remind that it's in a great transition of redemptive history, that we might be tended... That we, when we come to narratives like this in the Old Testament, we kind of think, well, some of this stuff is interesting and it's important to know when we need to know it. But what would a text like this have for Christians, or even non-Christians, living in Jackson, Mississippi in the year 2010? Thousands of years removed from this type of an account. Well, it has a lot to say to us. Because if you think about it, we have the same struggle in reality and forces in the world today as Israel did in the world of its day. Don't we too struggle over ownership? Doesn't our culture, whether it's directly or subtly, demand and lay claim over ownership of our lives, whether it's our time or our money or our fellowship, our relationships, our job, our security, all things? And yet, some might say, 
you know, it comes into the realm of politics, too, or government. Some say, well, the government has ultimate authority, not in the sense that Pharaoh had authority, but there are governments, even in our world today, that are saying, we own you. And then on the opposite side, there are people who say, well, how we govern our world and ourselves is that I own me. I have a right to decide for myself. No one else, not even family, no one else can lay any claim over who I am and what I do and what I'm all about. You see, the same issue in this text was the issue in our own day. Who has a right to demand ownership? And if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you've bowed the knee, you are a servant of the King. But the irony is, in being a slave to Christ, that is where the heart of true blessing and true freedom is all about. It's a paradox. But we cannot fool ourselves, just as Israel could not fool itself, that it was somehow in control of its own destiny. Destiny. The God, God is at work. There is a God who is leading his people in this account. Just as he would deliver them from Egypt, he would lead them all the way to the promised land, to the appointment he had with them in worship. And so what I want us to take away from this text this morning, if nothing else, is that the God we worship today and the God we meet with today and the God we pray to every day and the God who leads us and takes us by the hand, just as he takes Israel by the hand, is a God who cares for us. He's a God who's faithful to us. And he's a God who never, ever leaves us. He never leaves his people. God cares for his people. In verse 17, we read that God did not lead them. Again, God's leading. It's not that Moses or Joshua or someone else was out in front and was directing the path. And it's not as if there was God or someone else who was a GPS or Google Maps who was telling them, okay, what you do is you take a left at Etham and then you come to Succoth and then you go through these. No, God is leading the way. Not just telling them where to go. God is leading the way. But we have this interesting detail that he does not lead them by the way, by the land of the Philistines, although that way was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. What's going on? You can imagine, Israel is just like us, we're, we're like Israel, that after 400 years of bondage and captivity and slavery, we would think, once we've gotten our deliverance, whew, we can sit back and coast. We, they knew they were going to the land which was flowing with milk and honey. And they, I imagine, I don't know for sure, but I imagine they expected an easy route, a safe route, and a comfortable route. But God directs their way not in the way that would make sense, not in the way that from an earthly standpoint you might think was the best route to go. No, he takes them down a different road because he knows them better than they know themselves, just as he knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows if they, even though they went up out of Egypt equipped for battle, God knows that they're not yet ready to face war. And so they go the long way. They go the wrong direction. Not because they had gotten God's directions wrong, but because they had gotten them right. I think there's something for us in that idea. Just because you find yourself in a time of wilderness, or trial, or temptation, or pain, or suffering, don't jump to the conclusion that somehow you've missed God's will, or that God's leading you down some path to get you, or He's punishing you. Sometimes the long road, the road that 
isn't the most direct route. It's exactly the God-appointed road because we might not even see the Philistines that are in the other land or in the other route. We don't know what we might be missing by going the road we are. But again, we're seeing that there's a God who's leading us, who knows his people, and he cares for his people. And that's why he leads them down the road that he does. He cares for them. He guides them. He is good. Again, we might not always know what's coming next. We might not be able to anticipate. But we can know the one who leads us. We know he's good. And we know he loves us. We know that he has bought us with a price. And he has ransomed us and delivered us so that we might meet with him and worship. Just as Israel was delivered so that they would worship the Lord on Mount Sinai, so we too have been rescued from the pit of the slavery of our own sin and our own unrighteousness by a three times holy God so that we might know him and that we might have that fellowship with him that Israel enjoyed so that we might find the eternal promised land and one day when we die and stand before his throne in glory and worship him, we too have been redeemed for worship and we too are on a journey and God is leading the way. And God cares for us. How do we know that he cares for us? He's also faithful to us. He's faithful to his people. There's an interesting note. I don't know if you took any notice of it, if you thought about it before. But verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Well, what's that all about? Thousands of people in a crowd, livestock, cattle, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night are not the only magnificent image in this passage. Moses carries the bones of Joseph. And Joseph was one of the forefathers of the nation of Israel. And he's going along. And what that was saying to the people of Israel is that God has been faithful to his promise. Way back in Genesis chapter 48, God had promised to Joseph's father Jacob that the people of Israel would enter and take possession of the land of Canaan, the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But Jacob died outside the land, and Joseph would take his bones and bury them in the land of Canaan. But Joseph, in the end of Genesis 50, the end of the book of Genesis, ends up in Egypt, not Canaan. And in that time, even more so than today, because if you think about today, when people pass away, when they die, it's really common, even if someone has lived 40 or 50 years in another place, people will spend all kinds of great expense and time, and they'll have their body flown or driven, whatever, and they'll be back to be buried in a certain place, because that place is home to them. That's where they want to rest and remain. And, and so we have even a some sense of this today. But even more so in this day was the idea of the patriarch being buried in the land of his home. And Joseph had died and been dead for 400 years. But his bones were not home. But God promised Joseph and Jacob and his aunts that they would be buried in the land of Canaan. And so as Moses is carrying the bones of Joseph, it is shouting to the people, God has remembered his covenant. 
Way back in, in a few chapters before, in the beginning of Exodus, God is saying, I have heard my, the cries of my people who are in, in Egypt, and I have remembered my covenant with them. Well, what are we talking about when we say God is faithful to his covenant promises? How the king of heaven and earth relates to his people is in this idea of covenant. It's basically a relationship, a binding relationship between two people. And this is important because God had not only made a covenant with Abraham, their forefather. He said, God made a covenant with Abraham and said, I'm going to make of you a great nation and your descendants will be so many that you can't even count. You could count the stars in the sky and the heavens so you can number your descendants. And it was a promise. And that promise was important. Why? Because God had also made a promise right after sin had entered the world that he would bring about a deliverer and a redeemer who would crush the serpent, and he would defeat sin. And so God is not only being faithful to this promise to Abraham, to the forefathers, Jacob and Isaac and Joseph. God is by, and as we see Joseph's bones being carried out and going forward into the land of Canaan, we are reminded not only that God has been faithful to his promise to the forefathers of Israel, but God is being faithful to us too because he's bringing about this nation. Why? So that there would be one born named Jesus Christ who would be the one who would take on the sin, who would live a life of perfect obedience, and he would die a substitutionary death on the cross. He would take our place, and our sin would be nailed to the cross. So God is faithful. But it also reminds us that we who are God's people, we're not at home where we're at. If you're a Christian... If you walk with the Lord, if you have this promise and this hope and this faith, Mississippi is not your home. Alabama, Texas, Ohio, Marquette, Michigan, it's not your home. It's your home in one sense. But your home is heaven. Your citizenship is heaven. Who you are is so much more than just a tax-paying citizen in the United States of America. Who you are is an heir to the, to the throne in heaven. You are a son. You are a daughter with all the benefits, of the love and the richness of the mercy of God. And that's yours. So we're reminded we're not home. We're pilgrims too, just as Israel was pilgrims. But we already see that the path to pilgrimage the path of pilgrimage is not the easy road. It's not the most direct road. It's hard. It's full of strife. It's full of conflict. But God is leading us. God is good. And he cares for us. And he's kind. And he's faithful. And he also will never leave us. Our third point. This pillar of fire and this pillar of cloud by day and by night, again, we're just even emphasizing the points we've already made because what was going on was fire and cloud was not a, a, not a foreign image to the people of Israel. They were quite familiar and would be even more familiar as the book of Exodus goes on with this manifestation of the presence of God in fire and in smoke or cloud. And again, we talked about earlier how God is faithful to his covenant promises and how God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 that he'd bring about this nation which would bring about the Redeemer and the Savior of the world. 
Well, the most amazing thing about the covenant with Abraham way back in Genesis 15 is not that God and Abraham swore a covenant together, but that Abraham was asleep. So God was swearing unto himself that if he is not faithful and if he doesn't follow through on his promises, then it would be unto God as it was to the sacrificed animals who were cut in pieces. And and the presence of God walked through these pieces of animal. It's a glorious passage. And how God's presence was made manifest was in Genesis 15 records in a smoking pot and fire. Fire and smoke. And so not only Joseph's bones reminding God's people that he's faithful, but even as they'd look at the pillar of cloud and fire, they knew this God who was faithful and was good and was kind is leading the way. The word in Hebrew for a pillar could also be translated as something standing. So something standing would kind of tell us that the fact that this is a continual presence, it was never ending. It was always standing. And sometimes it would stand over the tent of the meeting later on in Exodus 33. And sometimes it would hover and they knew it was time to go forward when when the cloud would start to move. So it's important to see that it's one thing, again, as I said earlier, for God to say, this is the route now, good luck. And, you know, if you get lost, call me. Let me know how it goes. It's another thing for him to actually be in their midst and to be guiding them every step of the way. Just as he guides us every step of the way. This God who is just as relentless in the deliverance of his people is concerned with the journey that they get home. So for you and me in our daily walk with him and our discipleship and our sanctification as our growth in grace... God is just as proactive, and he's just as much of a continual presence in our lives, in our hearts, as he was for them. Because he's kind, and he's good, and he's leading them, and he's directing them, and he knows them, and they know him. You know, in many ways, the goal of the Exodus, which we said earlier, was to get the people of God to worship was not yet realized in geography. At this point, they're just beginning their journey. But in many ways, the goal has already been realized in community. God was already dwelling in their midst. Though they go and worship him on the mountain, God is already meeting his people. One commentator and scholar talks about how it's almost as if that God cannot get close enough to his people. He can't get close enough to his people. He, can't, he loves to be near to his people. He loves to be with his people. He loves to guide and direct his people. You know, in the Hebrew sense of true blessing is not always the way that we would think of blessing in our day. We might think of blessing as good health, money, 2.5 kids, car, nice house, white picket fence, Good retirement, friends, good relationships. All those are important. But the, but the Jewish person understood blessings as how near you were to the presence of God. And then when the, the presence of God would be manifest in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And so when Israel would literally pitch their tents, you know how you knew you were blessed? was how close in proximity you were able to pitch your tent to the presence of God. That's what it meant to be blessed. That's what it meant to have life and to be full, 
to be happy, to prosper, to have purpose and meaning, is to be near to the presence of God. Although God, in His wisdom and in His time, chooses not to dwell with us today in theophany, which is just a $10 word for a visual manifestation of the presence of God, but He chooses to dwell within His people in another tabernacle, in the tabernacle of our own hearts, which the New Testament calls the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in our midst, in our hearts, and He dwells in community with us, and he meets us in this place. And Jesus will talk about when two or more are gathered. And we're familiar with these passages. That's why it's so important when we talk about at Highlands, we need each other. We really need each other. God wants us to be together. We can't make it through this journey, through this wilderness by ourselves or on our own. We need each other. God dwells in our midst. He meets with us in this place. He knows us, and we're known by him. Jesus Christ is also in this passage. Because when we talk about God leading, we understand in our theology that any time God is at work in the scriptures, that all the persons of the Trinity are at work in different ways and in different fashions. We can also understand Christ in this passage as being the fulfillment of all that we're talking about. Because you see, Christ, in order to win our bondage, from slavery. In order for there for us to be sheltered underneath the blood of the lamb, just as it was pictured, just as it was foreshadowed in the book of Exodus, in the plagues and in the release from captivity. Jesus Christ would also have to go through a wilderness of humiliation. He'd have to take on flesh. He'd have to be born of a virgin. He'd have to live a life of perfect obedience, fulfilling the law every single iota. Because we can't. Because just like Israel, we get lost. We rebel. We know what's coming in the next chapters in the book of Exodus. No matter how much they see the glory and the power and the might of God on display, no matter how many times he's faithful, they still fall away. And they still stray. And they still sin. And yet God cares for them. And he's faithful to them. And he never leaves them. He does the same with us in Christ. Jesus says in John 7, No one can snatch my people out of my hand. Revelation 7.10 says, Salvation belongs to the Lord. God has ownership of his people. And the God who has ownership of his people, the God we worship, the God who meets with us in this place, the God who walks with us in the wilderness of our lives, is the God who leads us. And he cares for us. He directs our way. He's faithful to his promises, to his people. He's not done with us. He's going to get us home. Who doesn't want to go home? And he never leaves us. No matter how dark, no matter how despondent, no matter how great the suffering, God leads us and he cares for us. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you obey him? Do you want to obey him? Do you want to be led by him? Do we want to go our own way? Let me invite you, if you've never had this opportunity, to think about in your own heart, in your own life, where you're at on your journey. 
I invite you to receive Christ and to trust him and to know him because he loves you and he died for you. If you do know Christ, let me encourage you that along the way, he's still leading and he's still caring. Keep obeying, keep studying, keep praying. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you are a God who leads, that you care for us, that you delivered us, and that you bring us home. We look forward to that day and we will stand before you. And the goal of our salvation will be realized in worship and in perfect harmony and community with one another. We pray you continue to bless us, forgive us when we fall down, Forgive us when we take the stray path, the wrong road. We trust your sovereignty in your hand, in our lives and at work in this place. Be with us now as we continue to worship you. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.